Bienvenidos to Open Loathing episode three. This is Gene. And this is Mike. How's your week been? Good, man. I, I made it out to the park this past weekend. Yo, so you finally got to hoop? Be back out there. Yeah, man. Hoop and loathe. Hoop and loathe. Mad loathing going on right now. Mad loathing. For those of you that can't see, which is everybody, Mike's beard's on point. You know, he got that little handlebar stuff going on. Adding to the yeah. mystique of the logo. Got to keep it traditional with the logo, man. So I think the big topic of the conversation starts with Kobe Bryant. Yeah, first of all, rest in peace, Kobe, GGN, you know, the victim of the helicopter crash. Kobe Bryant was, was uh, one of the focal points in this last week's episode, for sure. Happy birthday to Gigi. I think, in a way, we all got to say goodbye to Kobe. It was nice. You know, it was... Uh, yeah, it was, it, was a tough, it was a tough loss, but uh, I mean, the way everyone came together and honored it. And did did all these memorials, a lot of fundraising too for his foundation, which is good. I mean, it's a it's a tragedy, but uh, the way everybody came together to to mourn the loss, it was it was it was a nice thing to see. We all know that Kobe was exemplary on basketball, but you can't talk Kobe without Jordan. It was nice to see that that opinion was rewarded in a way. For as much as uh, in personal opinions, for as much as I feel like LeBron probably the greatest basketball player we've ever seen just based on his god-given skill set talent and physical ability i think growing up we could both agree that the closest thing that to michael was kobe yeah he was like a carbon copy i mean very similar and even their physical attributes same height same weight both bald played the same position athletic yo say that again athletic 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 crazy work ethic man i think that was the most you know, com- comparable, uh, I guess, personality trait is that their work ethic was unmatched. And um, Kobe, I wouldn't say stole from Jordan so much as he just learned from him the way Jordan learned from Julius Irving and every and everyone else that came before him. You know, that's just the evolution of the game. You learn from what you see before you and you play that to the game and, and you keep the game moving forward. It was nice to see a side of Kobe that, for the most part, Kobe wasn't a very beloved figure, you know, outside of Los Angeles. Man, I, a lot of hated, I hated Kobe when he first came. His passing hit us all differently, but I don't want to stay too somber. I just wanted to point out in a way that not just you can't have Kobe without Michael, but uh, the impact that Michael had on Kobe's career personally, the fact that he was willing to acknowledge that, because I think you, you can attest to this, that for as much as the conversation, and I, I say it again, was has always been LeBron or MJ, for a lot of people, especially in the West Coast, it's always been MJ or Kobe. And it was yeah. nice for Kobe, in his own words, to acknowledge that that's BS. There is no Kobe without Michael. Everything that we love about Kobe, you know, he got from Mike. Yeah, I mean, we anyone that watches basketball can see the, the resemblance in the game. Fade away, the post, the jumper. I think the, I think the one thing Kobe did that Jordan never had or never did consistently was uh, he developed a three-point game, which obviously the way the game progressed was very important. But that's that not fair. It's not fair to point out because the three-point shot was not was not that it wasn't important. It wasn't a, a considerable factor in offenses during Jordan's time. No, for sure. Yeah, that definitely came with the time. So we don't know. For all that we know, Michael could have developed a three-point shot to rival Kobe's. Or LeBron. Oh, I, I I guarantee that he would have shot 45%, 40%, not 45, but 40% from three if he had actually practiced, if the game had lended itself to that during that time because he he basically took what the game gave him and he made it his. 
that's why he is, by most accounts, the greatest player of all time. And and that's what Kobe did. What, during Kobe's time, he was at his prime in the 2000s. During that time, that was the beginning of what we what we see now, where it's a heightened three-point shooting league. 1,000%. And you can see that Michael took what was given to him. Kobe took what was given to him. Both of these men were blessed physically. They could do whatever the hell they wanted on the court. In my opinion, a grand stretch of their careers, especially in uh, in Kobe's eyes, he didn't have to develop a three. It wasn't until his... Uh, his athleticism, or as you would say, athleticism, started waning that I think the three-point shot came into existence. I do want to end the somber note by pointing out how goddamn hated Kobe Bryant was as a young rookie, man, or as a young player. I can't speak for everybody, but for anybody but me, but I just hated how arrogant he was. This is a 17-year-old kid coming out of high school thinking he's better than, like I said, by most accounts, the greatest player of all time. And for him to come, and even on draft day, you know, some people say he demanded a trade. He was a little bit started. So that was, you know, his his basically his entrance into this main stage that is the NBA. And then, you know, he's getting all this hype, and nobody really knows much about him. And it's just this high school kid coming into the league thinking he's the best. So obviously that's going to strike a lot of people the wrong way. Well, but what other player are we going to – what other Hall of Fame basketball player can we say did not have that trait? We know that Michael came into the league thinking he was the best player in the league, and he proved it. And he wasn't as there wasn't as much vitriol, I assume, for Michael as there was for young Kobe Bryant. MJ talking to Magic and Larry and who and Tim Hardaway. Shit, if I played on this kid's team, I never pass him the goddamn ball. You want the ball? Go get a rebound. Like, like angry curmudgeons. But you kind of have to feel that Co- that Michael saw a lot of himself in Kobe. Yeah, he absolutely did. Even and, from the beginning. And and I think at first. It's human nature to feel threatened by that. You're essentially on on your last legs as an NBA superstar in the league, and you see the next version of you. So I think it's human nature to to feel threatened by that. And you know, it could have gone a really different direction. He could have had a lot of apathy and and resentment over Kobe, but instead he took him under his wing. Uh, they became brothers. They had a really close relationship. And really, like Kobe said, he was he became Kobe because of Michael Jordan's influence. I have to feel that because the way that Michael spoke about his peers, for example, the way he spoke about Clyde Drexler, you know, who was probably the second best two guard in the league at that time. And the way that he spoke about Kobe lends to think that he never saw Kobe as a threat because Michael was too arrogant to ever see threats. And he wanted you to know that there was no threat. It was more, in my eyes, it was more of a admiration flattery michael saw the yeah it was flattered by it yeah they say imitation is the, is the highest form of flattery right and that's exactly what kobe bryant did he tried to emulate his game and what i liked about kobe now in in retrospect is that he didn't even though he was very arrogant as a young as a young player he never thought that he knew everything and he went to people like michael jordan to learn the game from them and try to become better himself based on what the players before him have done uh, and I'm sure it wasn't just with Jordan. I'm sure he he learned a lot. You know, when he was a rookie, his first couple years in the league, he played with Byron Scott. I'm sure he learned a lot from him. You know, there were there were a lot of players, whether they were superstars or not, they could have even been role players that I'm sure he learned a lot from, not just basketball, but life. And I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but that, I think that's part of the reason why he became such a successful businessman outside of the basketball world. So. I think any sign of a wise individual is not how good they are at at knowing things. It's how well 
they're able to is how well they're able to accept the fact that they don't know a lot of things. The best quarterbacks, the best point guards play within their strengths. Chris Paul is not going to blindly attack rims anymore. And he hasn't since his, what was it, his first knee injury when he was a member of the Hornets. His skill set, well, his greatness, in my opinion, and Kobe's as well, was the ability that they were, they were okay knowing their limitations. They worked at, you know, limiting the amount of limitations. But that greatness, that ability to know yourself and still be able to rise above them by implementing things, you know what I'm saying. I think that was one of the best attributes of Kobe and people like Kobe. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's important to know your weaknesses. And Kobe definitely excelled at knowing what his weaknesses were and working on that and improving his game. You know, there's certain things that you can't overcome, like height. Chris Paul is one of the shorter guards, one of the shorter superstar guards in NBA history. Shout out to him Hardaway, who was also a small guard. Crossover guy. Speaking of small guards, maybe now's a good time to jump into uh, Isaiah Thomas and his uh, absence from the 1992 uh, Dream Team. When it comes to the Dream Team, what made it so great was that the Dream Team was a perfect snapshot of the greatness of basketball at the time. You had Magic, Bird, Jordan. Scotty, you had Sir Charles Barkley, you had the mailman, you had, I don't know, I can go on and on. You had Christian Leitner, the greatest college basketball player of all time. It will always ring hollow in a way that the greatest point guard after Magic that we've ever seen never got to play. And in a way, it feels like Isaiah's success, and it's not his success, but the way that he achieved that success, the, the style of play that we talked about last episode or the episode before that, the, that that Pistons team had lent itself for enemies, you know? And I think an important part to consider that I never considered before because we always, his, uh, him being left off the team was always attributed to his relation with, relationship with Michael Jordan. When in reality, a lot of people in the NBA, a lot of the star players in the NBA resented Isaiah. You created so many enemies because you were willing to go down to the sewers where nobody wanted to go. I think it sucked that he wasn't there. I don't think Isaiah had a lot of friends in the league at that time. Yeah, it was strictly in basketball terms. It's it's hard to imagine Isaiah Thomas not making a 12-man roster of the best players in the world in 1992. But when you consider that the makeup of the team, the nucleus of the team, is consists of Michael Jordan, Mary Bird, and Magic Johnson, who have all had in one way or another, a running with Isaiah Thomas, it, it, it makes sense that he would be left on the team because while he might have been the second best point guard behind Magic, I mean, you, who, who are you going to take off that dream team? Ross? Well, we have the list John here. John Stockton is one of the best point guards of all time. So, in my opinion, mm-hmm. the weirdest aspect of all this, the weirdest part of his... Omission? Yes, thank you. The weirdest part of his omission to me, was always the fact that Chuck Daly was the coach of that team. Man, it must have hurt him that Chuck Daly was the one that left him off. We don't, we don't know uh, and probably should have speculated on how much influence Chuck Daly had on, on putting together the roster. That's but true. You would, but you would think that he would at least nudge someone to get his, a player from his own team on the, on the roster. But you could have definitely, I'm sorry, you could have definitely put him in for John Stockton. Just the omission of Isaiah was always a little weird. Yeah, and it seemed very personal. Yeah, I agree. Another thing that we that we should consider too is I, I don't have the numbers here in front of me, but how many minutes were guys like John Stockton, Chris Bullen, 
and Christian Leitner playing because would Isaiah Thomas have accepted a lesser role on that team, playing garbage minutes or no minutes? I think anybody would have accepted no minutes to be on part of that team. Just for the simple fact that it's, what is it, May 4th, 2020, and what I'm 20, I'm 29, you're 29, and we're both talking about the dream team, the 1992 dream team. The dream team will be talked about until the end of time. Well, the and dream, I think, yeah. I think uh, you know, a lot of people probably know this already, but maybe the common NBA fan or the common sports fan doesn't know this. That 1992 uh, dream team, that was the first collection of NBA superstars to represent uh, the United States in Olympic competition for basketball. Yeah. Every, every single Olympic, modern Olympic, as far as basketball is concerned, was made up of collegiate athletes, amateurs. And it wasn't until 1992 that we got to see how good the collection of NBA superstars in the NBA is relative to everyone else around the world. What's the famous saying? Sex sells. Yeah. And I think in terms of eyeballs, everybody was having sex with their screens when the Dream Team was on. And it propelled not just the NBA in international eyes, but American culture in international eyes. Yeah, a thousand percent. That was the that was the first time that sports or basketball was put on that global stage to that you know to that level and I mean the United States just embarrassed the competition and it was I mean it was it was to a point where these where these countries were asking for autographs at the end of games because they were so taken aback by the the pure talent and, and the superstardom that came from these NBA players and as far as the 1992 dream team propelling American basketball forward. There's no greater example than the basketball, the NBA that we have today. You know, we have one of the most diverse leagues in the world as far as definitely as far as American sports goes. Uh, I think basketball has certainly expanded on the global stage since 1992. I think that was basically the, the turning point for, for basketball on a, on a global scale. I think another thing that we have to take into consideration is that you know, a sport like basketball, you need equipment, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, all you need is a basketball, but you need a hoop. A, a, sport, a sport like baseball, all you need is a stick and a spear. A sport like soccer, all you need is a spear, and you can kick it around. Basketball, you need certain things that countries like Haiti, countries like the Dominican Republic, countries like Nicaragua, which are all third world countries, you know, they don't have the resources to, to and they don't have the access to get the equipment needed to play a sport like basketball and, and obviously other sports as well. But, uh, you know, since we're talking about basketball specifically, uh, I think that's an, that, that's, that's a factor that we have to consider in, in, in uh, or as to why it's not as popular as a sport like, like soccer. But it's, I will say though, it's certainly come up. It's certainly gotten much bigger in, in the past three decades. For all the love that we get, that we're giving the dream team, they still have to go out and play that Croatian team had some players. Now, I don't know. I'm not familiar with all of them, but I am familiar with two. And we joked about Tony Kukoc, but he was a champion after the fact. He did have a long career. And they had Petrovic on the team. Petrovic, for all those, he played for the New Jersey Nets, Mm -hmm. and he was a baller in his short stint in the NBA and then passed away in a car accident in Europe in, in 1993 in Germany. So they still had to play the games. All jokes aside about Tony Kukoc, you know, who I feel bad for because Jerry Krause sure knew how to put an, an X on his back. Damn, they wanted to go after him. Yeah, we, we talked about this a little bit in episode one. 
And uh, in episode four, the six of The Last Dance, they, they talk about it a little bit in more detail. Uh, but yeah, this guy, Jerry Krause, who, it, again, he's a, a great general manager as far as putting together a basketball team. But he basically recruited this guy, Tony Kukoc, who, who nobody had heard of, and was basically priming him, prepping him to be the next Michael Jordan of the Bulls once this 1998 team was dismantled. Or, or rather, uh, sorry, this was back in, in 93. So uh, when there was speculation that Michael Jordan might retire after, after that 93 season. This was also during the time that Pippen's contract um, was being signed. And so you got your second best player on the team and arguably the second best player in the league whose contract you still need to negotiate. And rather than prioritizing him, you're going overseas to check on some basketball player that nobody's ever heard of. So what is what is that saying to Michael Jordan and Scotty Pippen? I will say Kukoc was a high draft pick. He did have some, he did have name recognition where he was from and in the Euro in Euroleagues. But I do I do feel that uh, there was a lot of missteps, not not from his part, because you know the man the man never set foot in the United States to play basketball until after the yeah until after the 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 ninety two Olympics. But I think he was drafted in nineteen ninety by the Bulls and decided to stay in Europe in Europe for a couple of years, which a lot of people do. More money, get to develop in a less stressful environment. The handling of the Tony Kukoc saga by Jerry Krause is a little. It's strange in a way. I've never seen a team nowadays put the team on hold and put the, the contract negotiations of an all-star on hold for, I guess, for essentially a rookie contract, which is what Jerry Krause did, which led to some animosity at the, the 92 Olympics when the U.S. faced the Croatian team for the first time in the group stages, which was a bloodbath. Yeah, that, that they really took it to him. You know, that first meeting, he... I don't remember his stat line, but I think he had two points, maybe. And this is the superstar of the Croatians. I mean, that goes to show they put the clamps on him. And uh, they were they were not playing games with him. And poor Tony Kukoc, he had no idea why they were attacking him that way. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, he could have very well, which I think is what they were hoping for, he, he could have very well said, fuck the NBA, I'm going to stay here. I'm, I'm making more money here. I have no business going over there and playing in that league. I mean, lucky for Bulls fans, lucky for the NBA. He ended up going to the NBA after all. I will say that uh, that team is very lucky. The Dream Team is very lucky that uh, that Tony Kukoc did not take it personally. Because I got my money on Tony Kukoc in a fight over all of them. A guy that grows up in a war-torn country who's going through a civil war at the time. You think he cares that a, that a couple guys, you know, got their panties in a wad because they didn't get the money that they wanted? He couldn't give yeah. a shit. Real, real quick, real quick. Let's not get too deep into this, but do you think the 1992, 1992 Dream Team is the best team ever assembled? And number two, who would win? The 1992, the 1992 Dream Team or the 2008 Dream Team? All right, guys. For all of you that are about to get offended, I've said this before. I think LeBron is the greatest player we've ever seen. My favorite player of all time is Dwayne Wade. And I think that the 2000... 2008 Olympic team would mop the fucking floor with the dream team. Mop the floor with the mop the floor. Dude, you have LeBron in his prime, Kobe in his prime, Dwayne Wade in his prime, Carmelo Anthony at his apex. And then on top of that, 
you have some uber athletic bigs that can not only that can not only attack the hole, dribble, handoff, play defense, but can shoot from lights out. I'm sorry, I got my money on the 2008 Olympic team, the Redeem team, baby. Yeah, that, I, I I saw every game from that 2008 Olympic tournament. That team was real fun to watch. But uh, we should also remember that international play, the three-point line is shorter. So the, 2000, the 2018 wouldn't really have an advantage in that because the 1992 uh, Dream Team would still be shooting threes as if they were mid-range jump shots. So in that regard, they would be pretty, they would be pretty uh, you know, close in, in that. All right. Everything you're saying makes sense. But check this out. You got Jason Kidd as, your, as one of your point guards. To back him up, you got Chris Paul. On top of that, you have LeBron James. You also have Darren Williams. And for those that don't remember Darren Williams, in the mid-2000s, the conversation of the best point guard in the league was Chris Paul, Steve Nash, and Darren Williams. You couldn't have a conversation who the best point guards in the league were without Darren Williams. Yep. You had... People were quick to forget, but he, he, was, he was real good. At forward, I already mentioned Carmelo, right? Boogie Mellow, Olympic Mellow, Hoodie Mellow. The most underrated superstar in NBA history. Go on. At the apex of his career in the 2008 Olympics. You had Tayshaun Prince, the arms of God. He taught Mm -hmm. LeBron James to chase down block. Before LeBron James was running 90 feet to block people from the back, it was Tayshaun Prince doing it to him. Let me just remind people of that. You had Chris Paul. You had LeBron James. You had, I'm sorry, I said Chris Bosh. And you have fucking Dwight Howard. Which I don't, I don't, I'm not particularly a big fan of Dwight Howard, but he's a really good big. In, in the 2000s, if you put, went, I mean, he went to the finals in 2009, and yeah, that the whole 2000s was since he came to the league in 04, he was, he was dominating. I'm a huge fan of Charles Barkley. I think Charles Barkley is uberly underrated, and I'm sorry for him that he had to play in the in the in the time of my Michael Jordan because if it wasn't for Michael Jordan, the NBA would have been dominated for two decades by. Charles Barkley and Hakeem Olajuwon, you know, hands down. I don't think there's any – Charles Barkley comes from the same cloth as, you know, Moses Malone and, and LeBron James. Yeah, I think people, doesn't believe me. I think people forget he played with Moses Malone. So he actually learned – literally learned from Moses Malone. He got his game from Moses Malone. You know, that's why every time Draymond Green opens his mouth, I want, literally want to stick a cherry bomb in there. Tell him to shut oh, the man. hell up. We, we, can have a full, away. we can have a full episode on Draymond. Man. Dude, I'm so sick of Draymond Green. Like, I'm beyond sick of Draymond Green. Like, I freaking, I don't hate Draymond Green because I don't want Draymond Green to have that kind of power over me as an individual. But Draymond, Draymond Green can go choke on the biggest donkey penis that he can find in the pasture out in Montana or wherever the hell he wants to go. He needs to go the hell off, overthinking yeah. how good he is. The man had an opportunity this year to prove that he's great. How much did he average this year? Like four points a game, five points a game? Six, I don't know, man. Go not, even, not, even, not even worth mentioning, man. I don't, I don't know, but if I did know, it wouldn't even be worth mentioning. Regardless, Draymond Green, go suck donkey penis. But right. you have Charles Barkley, right? And as much as I love Charles, Charles was what, 6'7", six, 6'8"? Six, no, know? he was 6'4". He was listed as 6'6". Six, six. Turns out he's been, he was 6'4 this whole time. Even worse. Dude, you and have a straight bully at 6'4, straight bully down there. 
You have who are who are let me see, who are the big men on that team? On the ninety-two team? Yeah. Uh Patrick Ewing. Patrick. So okay. You have Patrick Carl Ewing. Malone. Yeah, Carl Malone, as great as he is, as country strong as he is, dude, we're we're forgetting how good Dwight Howard was. How good fucking Dwight Howard was. He was Dwight Howard, Dwight Howard, we were legitimately talking about who should have been drafted first. Who do you want to build around? LeBron or Dwight Howard? Straight face. This happened for over five years. And you had the arguments, you could have made the arguments for either one. I think at Dwight that, Howard. At that time. Yeah. Dwight Howard, unfortunately, was um, his career has been sidetracked by himself and also just by the evolution of the game. Dwight Howard was never that skilled of a big man, but you can't tell me that Dwight Howard wasn't a physical presence on the paint. He wasn't a physical, he was a physical presence on the board and he was a dominated on defense. Like not a little bit, dominated on defense. Regardless. Yeah, he, he controlled the paint. All right, so you're going with the 2018. Yeah, 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 because we didn't even get to, like, Wade, LeBron, you know, and all these other – like, I'm sorry. I'm going with the Redeem team. I understand people are going to hate me for it. Are you saying that that 2018 is the best team ever assembled? You can go 1A, 1B. Redeem team and Dream team, 1A, 1B. You all know? right. That's fair. Flip That's it fair. however the hell you want. To, to get back on, on the 1992 Dream team specifically. Michael Jordan. That's really what catapulted. Uh, I mean, Michael Jordan already was a household name in the United States at the time, but in 1992, when being on that Olympic stage, I think that's what catapulted him into households on a global scale. And we find out that 93 season was filled with internal turmoil because now that this spotlight is on him, we're seeing his not so great qualities. Uh, one of, among them is his gambling quote-unquote problem. Well, so what, do you, what do you think about that? Well, anytime we build, some, build an individual into a mythology, we always tear them down, always. Michael Jordan's peak was after the 92 Olympics as a celebrity. He was peak celebrity after the 92 Olympics. And um, like any great celebrity, you know, that reaches his apex, we start looking at the cracks in the mountain. And for Michael, I think it was, I think the problem with Michael Jordan was we have this weird sense of who's a role model in our society based on how popular you are. When I don't think Michael was ever hiding his vices, ever. No, I mean, he was pretty, uh, for all intents and purposes, he was a pretty private person. You know, I, I, I think this is the first time that the public is learning of really what an asshole he was. You know, to at least to his teammates, maybe to, to management while he was playing for the Bulls. Um, but he, as, as big a celebrity as he was, he led a pretty private life. But the one thing that was never kept secret was his gambling addiction. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. He never hit his gambling addiction. But yeah. I don't think it's fair to call it a gambling addiction. I don't think it's right, fair at all. Right. I, I, I'm, using, I'm using the term loosely based on you know, the scrutiny that he was facing during the time. I can, I enjoy gambling. Um, I know a couple of people that also enjoy gambling. I like playing cards. Uh, I play cards whenever I get a chance to play cards. You know, if I'm with a group of people that want to play cards, I'm down to sit down and play cards and I'll be stuck there for hours. I don't think Michael ever hid his gambling problem. I just think, like I said, you, once you reach the apex of celebrity, once you climb the mountain, there's only one way to go and it's down. Michael Jordan was a compulsive gambler. I think he was addicted more so than gambling. He was addicted to competition. I think that was very clear from watching the episodes yesterday. 
the men just like to compete. I think the broader conversation goes, are athletes role models? And to touch back on the, uh, the gambling thing, building him up to basically be a mythological figure, essentially, uh, I think that that goes to show that people have a fascination with, with trying to humanize people, or trying to humanize uh, celebrities, because Jordan in the 90s was just God, right? Larry Bird called him God disguised as Michael Jordan during that 1986 playoff series against the Celtics. And I think it gets to a point where someone, you see someone in the public eye for so long and they do nothing wrong that you, you, you just pry and pry and pry until you find the one thing that makes them human. And, you know, gambling is an easy thing to point at and say, okay, he has, he has a gambling addiction, he has a gambling problem. He's not a good role model. He's not what we thought he was. When I was growing up in the Dominican Republic, there was nobody I found more successful that I idolized more than my grandfather. He was a surgeon. He had his clinics. He had a couple farms. He was a medical doctor of Las Aguilas Ibaeña, or the team doctor. And my grandfather also had his vices, like a lot of men from that era. And I, I don't care where you were. Every, it feels like all the men from that era were the same. And, and in terms of Michael Jordan and his father, comparing him to my grandfather, no matter how good you were at certain things, your vices were always, I like to drink, I like to smoke, I like to gamble. It was, as, it was almost a rite of passage as a, as a man to get your first, your first scotch, to get your first cigar, and to play your first bolitas, or your first run money line on a baseball game. I know personally, as someone that likes to bet football, likes to bet college football, college basketball, you know, NFL, that there's like a rush to it, no matter what you're doing, no matter what you're betting on, it's just a rush to it. And when, when, you, ha when you come from that environment, like Michael did in terms of his, him and his father, and you have the means to do it, shoot, man, do it all you want. Like, forget it, F it up. You know, I think, I think what you were trying to say before when you, you, you mistaken, you said we try to normalize people. No, we idolize people. We put them on a pedestal. And then once they get too high for us to see, then we start trying to humanize them to bring them back down to earth. And Michael, Michael Jordan had a lot of flaws. We can talk about his gambling. Me personally, when it comes to Jordan, I just feel like he sold his people out in a way. He was, uh, his biggest vice in my opinion was consumerism. He worshiped the altar of the almighty dollar. Let's, let's put it that way. Everything was about capitalism, was about making money, and it was about his image so that he'd be able to make money. And I don't think, I don't see any faults with his gambling because he never gambled, and I don't care what you gamble, but my biggest flaws with him were he never stood for anything. And we can, and we can say that as an athlete, you're not, you don't have to be a role model as an athlete. You're just there to play, make your money, and entertain. But when you're at the level of a Michael Jordan, when you have the pulse of a culture, when you have the pulse of a people, when people think, it's funny to say this, but Michael Jordan represented dark-skinned America everywhere. It was just sad that he never used his fame and his fortunes and, well, I'm not going to say his fortune, but his fame and his voice to help out those around him. So you think, you think, uh, it's not his role as an athlete, but his role because of his cultural 
status. He has a responsibility to serve as a role model to certain people. Yeah, I, like the, the best way I can put it, and it's corny, it's, spy, it's a Spider-Man thing. Great power comes great responsibility. No one was asking Dennis Rodman to be the beacon of Black America. You know, no one was asking, no one was asking Scotty, no one was asking uh, uh, Horace Grant, no one was asking Clyde Drexler, no one was asking Charles Barkley. You know, we asked Magic Johnson, and then we asked Michael Jordan. And Michael never wanted to pick up that baton. I don't want to go straight to, oh, he didn't, he didn't um, endorse a political candidate because you don't have to, as someone personally, you don't have to endorse politics. Politics might not be your thing, but at the very least, you could have denounced the racist in Jesse Helms. He can't yeah, say, I, he I can, agree with that point. You can't say that Michael Jordan wasn't political and then see what he did against Reebok in the Olympics where he hid the Reebok sign. He was a, a, a Nike guy. You know, he, that's plain politics. It's a different kind of politics, consumerism, but it's politics. And I think, I think that, that, was, that was my big, uh, has always been one of my big issues with Michael Jordan. He never wanted to be that beacon. And he never tried to be that beacon, even though he was. Yeah, I, I, think, he, I think he actively avoided, you know, anything that had to do with activism. He didn't want that responsibility. And... Um, one of the biggest, um, I guess, celebrity athletes that had a role in, in social activism was Muhammad Ali. And, the biggest. Right. Um, and, and, and to bring it to basketball, we could say that Bill Russell, because obviously Bill Russell is from the 60s, and he, had a, 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 he played a large role in, in activism during the time, obviously yeah. during the civil rights era. And, you know, I don't think Jordan ever wanted a part of that. And obviously, when you have people before you, uh, like Muhammad Ali, the greatest boxer of all time, Bill Russell, arguably, by, by some accounts, still the greatest basketball player of all time. Um, you know, that expectation is sort of thrust upon you when you're the poster boy for the NBA and you have a platform as large as you do. And at this point, it's 1990, 1992, 1993, and the whole world knows who Michael Jordan is. The expectation is for you to take a stance, you know, for something that's uh, moral, ethical, uh, positive. So, like you said, you you don't necessarily have to back a certain political figure, but to denounce a racist, I think is is the very least that's expected of someone of his status. I don't want to get I don't want to get my point mistaken because I think Michael Jordan did a lot of great things, and I'm not just talking about basketball. I'm talking beyond basketball. Michael Jordan showed a lot of black men and a lot of minority, minority men, minority women. It showed anybody that came from poverty that not only can you excel and get out of it, but you can master the game as well. You know, you can use, um, you can use your God-given wits and pull out of it. I think Michael Jordan, and, and I go back to saying this, for as much as we don't, we don't want to admit this, racism exists everywhere. Unfortunately for a lot of people, they justify their racism overseas, you know, by some of the things that they see, prominent black figures. And as much as I love rap music, fucking love it to death, a lot of rappers, mainstream popular music, musicians, rappers, in effect, have given racists a platform to discredit black people in general, unrightfully so. And I think what people like Magic, Michael, Mad, Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, 
Michael Jackson did was change the perception of what you thought when you thought of a black man, you know, and when you think of Michael, when you think of Michael Jordan, you think of excellence before anything else. And he's so happens to be dark skinned black. And that perception lingered and in a positive way. So I don't want, I don't want to get, I don't want to, I don't want to linger too much on the negative because it's his God given right to do what he wants. It is. It's just a little bit disappointing when someone has so much power and decides to use very little of it. It reminds me a lot of Barack Obama. For a lot of people, Barack Obama was a disappointment because they felt that when elevated to the highest power in the world, he could have done more for the perception black, of black men and women across the world. And more specifically, he could have done more for the empowerment of minorities back home. But that's not here nor there. You can, only do, you can only do as long as you have. And in order to have, you can't piss off. So I think that's what Michael, Michael ended up succumbing to. I don't want to delve too much. He did a lot. He did a lot. He did do a lot. And he did serve as a role model for, for a lot of people. I would say uh, more so kids than anything else. You know, we have the Be Like Mike commercials. Everyone wanted to emulate him. I mean, he had a large role in, in society and uh, a lot of influence on the youth and a lot of influence on a lot of people, which actually brings up something that I, I want to get into a little bit, not too much, but, you know, the, the I guess, communication platform uh, or environment in the 90s, the landscape okay. was a lot different than it is today. Yeah. So I, I do wonder if uh, social media was around in the 90s, would his behavior be different? Would he be more of a social activist? Would he watch what he does? Would he curb his gambling habits? What do you think on that? Things changed when social media came about. And when I say social media, I don't mean MySpace. I mean specifically Facebook, Twitter, you know, because what social media did, Facebook and Twitter did, that it, it used the phone that was already in everyone's hands and turned everyone into media. That's dangerous. Journalism always was held to a higher standard. You know, trash, trash media, TMZ, uh, The Guardian, things like that, you know, were always looked down upon and unreliable news sources. That all changed in the, in the mid-2000s, early 2000s. The moment that everyone started having a phone and a camera at their disposal, discretion went out the window. You know, it all became about getting news stories out there as quick as possible, publishing it before somebody else. And in a way, it feels like, and, and we're going to get to this because we know what's coming. Michael's going to leave basketball. You know, he's going to walk away for the first time from basketball. And we kind of have to ask ourselves, what role did media play in that? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think Michael Jordan would ever admit to us or even to himself that media played a role in his decision to leave basketball. But you would have to think that after years of being in the public eye, someone as private as he is, having to deal with all the scrutiny and all the behind the scenes things that we don't even know about, it, it, it gets to you. And, um, you know, I think that also goes to show uh, what a different world we live in today when there's a phone in your face all the time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, how would that have influenced his decision back then? Would he have come back? Would he have left earlier? I mean, we, we don't know. I mean, we, we know one thing. We know that people nowadays are walking around with a level of anxiety never before seen since human beings were prey. 
So we walk around with this extra level of anxiety at all times. And it kind of, by the way, something that in a way, athletes of that, of that era, of the Jordan era, never really had to deal with because there was always that discretion that journalists had and that media personalities had that sports was sports, privacy was privacy, and fun was fun. If you didn't get in trouble, if there were no criminal charges, like no, no need to report. So I think 1000%, would Michael Jordan have been a different personality if he existed in the time social media? 1000% because the douchebaggery would have breached a lot more people would have circulated a lot more eyes, a lot more ears, and it would have generated less money, I believe. So the jury is out on whether the media played a role in his imminent departure from basketball, which you would think that it did because he was only eight years into his career. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, you're in your prime. Eight years into the, into the league in basketball, you're, you're in the heart of your prime. You're in the heart of your career. And that you just you're coming off of a, your third straight championship. There's no other reason I think that you would um, that you would leave the game. Well, there are a couple of reasons, and I don't want to really get into them because we might see him next week. Right. You know there are those rumblings and those uh, conspiracies that Michael Jordan's father and his own gambling that's led him to leave basketball for a time, yeah. you know, to avoid any unwanted eye. We can edit this part out, but also another conspiracy is that he was suspended by the league for two years because of his gambling. But I guess we can touch on that. One, another thing that I wanted to bring up, and this one I think should be given some more credence. Basketball is hard. Professional sports is hard. And when you're making more money outside of your profession than you are your profession, and you've already accomplished all that he has accomplished, at that point, why do you need to take the BS? That's a good point. Yeah, I mean, I, I would, I would think that someone with his drive and his uh, how competitive, knowing how competitive he is, he would have wanted to keep going. But I mean, we know we don't know for sure. Well, we do. Know this. Even though he stopped playing, that competitive drive did continue. It's what elevated Jordan Brand to the to the level that it is today. That's a level of competition within itself. Speaking of Jordan Brand, I think we should all be thankful that uh, Michael Jordan's mom forced him to go to that Nike meeting. That's the reason why we have all these Jordans on our feet today. Clearly, she was the brains of the family, right? Mike would have averted some of his vices if he had had a better relationship, a more friendlier relationship with his mother than his father. (laughs) To think that Adidas dropped the ball, man. They dropped the ball. And they dropped the ball big time. I mean, they've made up for it recently, you know, I think with the acquisition of Kanye West to their line. But look how long it took for them to really bounce back. Yeah. That's almost 30 years, almost three decades of like mediocrity. And and even so, their their brand is nowhere near what the Jordan brand is on a cultural level, on a financial level. I mean, they, that, that was probably, that has to be their biggest regret in their company's history. And for what? For $200,000? For, for a drop in the bucket? Like, come on. And, and Jordan, uh, I don't want to speculate, but I, I think it's, it's documented somewhere that he would have taken less money with Adidas just based off the fact that he liked Adidas. He wanted to sign with them. Money wasn't really an issue for him. I, I think it was shown the vision for his branding power didn't actually come from him, more so his agent. 
who wanted to individualize the the team team athlete, which was brilliant. Yeah, I think he. I, I think we're underappreciating his role in the success of Michael Jordan, the businessman, and Michael Jordan, the uh, I guess the entity from a business standpoint, because that man. I don't really know a lot about agents, but I feel like that man was ahead of his time with his thinking. He wanted to take a basketball player who had no real uh, influence at the time in, in, uh, with respect to you know other sports and market him as a household name. And, and I mean, he lucked out with Michael Jordan that he became Michael Jordan, as we know today. But he, the man was brilliant and um, and, and he, I think he was the reason why uh, they had a clause in Jordan's contract that he would get his own line with Nike. I mean, who? I don't think any agent was uh, throwing out deals like that. More specifically, his agent saw the niche in the market because the branding of athletes was not new. You know, you had your tennis stars and your golf athletes, your golf stars that were marketed individually and prominent. He was one of the first to notice or realize that on a basketball court, you have 10 basketball players. Their faces are exposed. If you get the right one, you can market the hell out of them. And he got the right one. So good on him. The foresight to say, hey, I'd rather take the smaller company that's more desperate to come up, you know, than one of these established brands. They would focus more of their attention on us. It's a blueprint that's used to this day. Dwayne Wade with Leaning, Clay Thompson with Anta. Stephon Marbury with Starberry. The list goes on and on. Uh, Spencer Dinwiddie has his own line of shoes. And it has transcended sports because, as you said earlier, who is Adidas cash cow right now? Kanye West. Yeah. So it, to, to, market someone's, to market someone based on their cultural influence, that's what we're seeing today with Kanye West. Adidas has a whole line of uh, rappers and, and uh, musicians that, um, that they promote to sell their products. And uh, obviously, we can talk about Run DMC back in the 80s, who was who were one of the first to do that. But yeah. I think David Falk took that to a whole nother level. And uh, Nike took that to a whole nother level. And that's why we have the landscape of consumerism that we do today with regards to sportswear. I don't want to drag on too long with this. So I'll, we'll end it here. This week's episodes were fantastic. It kind of, it sets it up, in my opinion, perfectly for what's to come. And I'm really ecstatic for what we get from here. Yeah, this is shaping up to be one of the best documentaries uh, in sports, at least as far as I've seen. And yeah, I'm looking forward to the next couple of episodes. Which 1,000%. Be, which should be touching on Jordan's first retirement, spoiler alert, and him getting into baseball, which uh, for those who don't know about his stint as a Chicago White Sox affiliate, you're, uh, you're going to be in for some the time. Marins. Ooh, ooh. Real quick before we go, I, uh, I wanted to touch on something that came out in the news recently because it seems like we might be getting basketball soon. The Miami Heat were granted permission by the mayor of, of the county to begin practices as early as May 8th. The NBA granted teams permission to hold individual practices in their, in their arenas, in their facilities, you know, as long as it's uh, is okayed by the respective cities. And we're hearing that there's rumblings that they might be moving the season to a neutral location. And that neutral location would be drum roll Disney world. What's your thoughts? And as a basketball fan, I'm just happy to hear any positive news with, uh, 
the season resuming. I just, I just want to watch some basketball, man. And um, yeah, I think the states are slowly reopening. Uh, the country is slowly reopening, which obviously uh, I think people's health and safety takes precedence. Um, but as long as we're in a position to do so, the fact that arenas are reopening to the players and that we're able to get some uh, some work in, or the players are able to get some work in, and hopefully that hints at, that hints at, at, at the possibility of the season resuming, that's, that's fantastic for any basketball fan. As far as having it in a neutral location, again, if the, play, if the players and, and staff's safety and health is prioritized, then we can get these games going with nobody's health being affected, I'm all for it. And on that note, if you want to keep your booty tight, keep your booty tight. If you want to keep your booty loose, keep your booty loose. I'm out. Wow.